Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to store and lock away all medications to prevent theft and keep them away from children and pets. Old medications can be disposed at Dropbox locations. Dropbox locations can be found at opioidresponse.info. Oh, hold on. Wait, wait, wait. Hold on there. We're all overjoyed to have that drive-by trucker song as our theme music. But we need some music that's a little more specific to what we're talking about today. What about uh, maybe this? Whiskey River, take my mind. Now that works. That was Mr. Willie Nelson. And this is the Bitter Southerner podcast from Georgia Public Broadcasting in the magazine I edit, The Bitter Southerner. My name's Chuck Reese. Welcome to episode three of our first season. Whiskey River don't run dry. All I've got to care of me. And yes, we are talking about whiskey today actually spirits of all kinds. Now, I know that some of you listeners to our new podcast might not necessarily be readers of The Bitter Southerner, but the people who have been readers for a while know that we try to cover the culture of the South from every angle. We come at the peculiarities and wonderments of this region both broadly and deeply. But I have a confession to make. We didn't begin with those big intentions. The original idea was just to do a little blog about Southern bartenders, and that's where our name came from, from the bitters that go in cocktails. But once we had that name, we felt like it was telling us to do something bigger, so we did. But that's another story for another day. On this episode, we're going back to our drunken roots. It's a show about booze, and we're going to dive into the hidden Southern history of spirits. We're also going to meet some folks across the South who are pushing the skills of their liquor-making forebearers into the future. Because you see, one of the South's greatest gifts to the world is our whiskeys. Our Kentucky bourbon, our Tennessee whiskey, even that bootleg shine. Now, booze does matter in every culture, as Willie himself once told a reporter, everybody needs a little something to keep the snakes down. But in the culture of the South, Spirits matter in some peculiar ways you might not know about. So today on the Bitter Southerner podcast, we're looking at Southern culture through a different lens, the bottom of a cocktail glass. To my mind, life has few pleasures to rival an evening spent across the bar from the right kind of bartender. Somebody who knows all the stories that are hidden in those bottles and recipes and has some skill at telling them to you. Now, my friend Tiffany Barrier is one such person. She's a mixologist and a cocktail historian. She grew up in a little town called Grand Coteau, Louisiana, and when she started mixing drinks, she didn't see many African-American women like her in the industry. She's on a mission to change that, but she's also on a mission to drop knowledge about the people of color who were highly influential but sadly, rarely celebrated in the development of cocktails that today we consider quintessentially Southern. I met up with her one night not long ago at Twisted Soul Cookhouse and Pours in Atlanta, where we talked about making busy izzies 
and mint juleps. When I got in this industry over 10 years ago, I wasn't really categorized as a woman of color. I was categorized as a woman. So gender was very important then because this is a uh, white male dominated industry. Being a woman was first things first. Like, whoa, 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 that's a woman doing this? Uh, that was the that was the shakeup part. It wasn't difficult. It was just not respected. I was looked at as like a cocktail waitress or maybe she doesn't know everything. Uh, and then um, within the past 10 years, it was looked at as a woman of color. It was the night, not only when I met you, but it was when I met Dave Wondrich, and he, he told me, you know, I've got this story I can't write for anyone else about the history of African-American bartenders in the South in the 19th century, and I was like, please write that for me, and I think it was, you know, maybe a year later when we ran the thing, uh, and, you know, since then I've learned so much more about that history uh, you know, and one person I've learned about even more recently is Tom Bullock, who I believe was the first African-American bartender to write and publish his own bar guide. Yes, sir. It's still, it's still a question if he wrote it. He oh, was really? illiterate, um, a slave owner possibly, even though he was slightly freed. This is around the time of emancipation. But even though emancipation happened, a lot of slaves didn't leave home. Yeah. They had nowhere to go. It's like a prisoner being in prison forever and then being like, okay, you can go, but he can't get a job because he's a prisoner. Uh, speaking of that, I'm about to make that cocktail right now. It's been ordered from Sir Tom Bullock himself. That busy is he. Busy, is he? <laughs> Just imagine drinking these drinks at this time in life. I mean, seriously. Oh my God, Mr. Bullock. <laughs> uh, his book was called The Ideal Bartender. Yes, he was called The Ideal Bartender. This, this, uh, this drink makes me want to agree with that title. <laughs> this is the late 1800s. And you're calling a cocktail the busy, is he? I'm like, yeah. <laughs> this guy is amazing. He is the number one in-house server of the house. He can cook, he can clean, and he can definitely make cocktails. And um, only a few things are really available. You know, here we are in the South, and you have your lemons, your limes, your oranges. Uh, apples are a little different. But no one's making syrups at this time, you know. But you see a pineapple every damn where. Um, also, you got things being shipped in from the Caribbean. You're getting a lot of island flavors. Bitters are coming in. Um, absinthe's coming in from France. Brandy is everywhere. Rye is plentiful. So this is one of my favorite cocktails. Um, this is a little bit of pineapple gum, which is a sweeter side of the pineapple, with um, some sherry, a little bit of rye and lemon juice. My mouth is watering. It's a busy Izzy. I'm, I, I, I love making the drink only because it has all the flavors and the buzz that you really, really want. Any good drink like this has a really good story. Yeah. If it read on the menu, I don't think you would read the Busy Izzy and go, oh, okay. But if you heard the story, you're like, well, shit, I want one of those. Like, that sounds good. Like, I want to know what they were drinking like in, you know, late 1800s. I want to know what it's like to be the ideal bartender's idea of what he would serve 
his guests, what's going to keep me who I am, what's going to make me proud to be who I am. Like, when the bartenders, Tom Bullock to be exact, um, John Dabney as well, mm -hmm. the, your owner or your housemate said, do whatever you want to do. Just make it good. Yeah. You know, punches and juices and like, just make it good. We don't really, you didn't have a GM or a boss coming going, use this product right here. Right. <laughs> and make me some drinks. Like this was, this was a chance to really be creative. People think mint julep these days and what they think about is rich white people at the Kentucky Derby. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, that's So let's piece. disabuse people of that notion, well, shall there's we? A re well, yeah. There's a reason why, and, and I, I won't take away from the rich white people at the Derby because, yeah, they're rich and they're white, and they're drinking the mint julep. <laughs> <laughs> that cocktail has so much value to the state of Kentucky. I think the creator of the mint julep was uh, the in-house barkeep of whatever large home out of Kentucky both Virginia's Tennessee. Uh, I don't think there is a pure documentation because there was a lot of different names going around, but I'll say John Dabney and uh, Cato Alexander, those two are noted top two creators of the Mint Loop. They were both freed slaves that actually stayed in, uh, that also helped, helped to help them. So Cato uh, Alexander was a free slave who freed himself once emancipation happened. He paid back his slave owner so that he could, you know, be free and he can do his own thing. The same thing with John Dabney. John Dabney was a freed slave, but he paid for his wife and family to come out of slavery. Um, and basically what that meant back then was uh, there was paperwork and you worked up until, you know, you were free. And so when Cato and John Dabney became free, they made cocktails um, at country clubs in the area, saved their money, and then bought back their family's freedom. But the show-off part was this cocktail was served to admirals and generals when they came to the South. Um, and you showed off your number one, your number one help, because your number one help took care of the garden, the cocktail garden. Right. So here's all your oregano and your basil and, and, and your rosemary, all, all your Southern goodness. But your mint garden is like, you just wait. <laughs> you just wait. I got this, I got this drink. Well, I'm gonna show off my, my sweet, thin, fine sugar with my best mint and our top bourbon. Top bourbon that maybe my brother next door got me. He got all this corn for me as the best rye and they make the best barrels and I'm a good barrel and I got the best mint. And then when the big guy invites people over, we're gonna show the hell off. And they would put this mint julep in this big, well, it was a punch at one time, in a big punch bowl, and you showed off, you showed your ass, I'm gonna say it like that. You showed your ass by your garnish. Yeah. The larger your mint was, kind of the bigger your balls. <laughs> Culture has come out of it, with, you know, who's picking mint these days. Nevertheless, it was the biggest, most prideful thing that anyone that was rich and white could show off from their home and their lands. Tiffany Barrier of Grand Coteau, Louisiana. We're so glad you did this with us. Chuck, uh, no one makes me giggle and talk about my good past and my grow up 
but you you Thank bring you. it to me every time love you make me feel so warm so thanks for keeping me a bitter seven we love you <laughs>Just like southern food, our cocktails reflect our region's roots in Europe, in Africa, and in the Caribbean. Since we started the Bitter Southerner magazine, we have periodically challenged great southern bartenders to take our name, the Bitter Southerner, and turn it into a cocktail. They can interpret it however they please. And there are now eight Bitter Southerner cocktails in the world, and Tiffany Barrier, who we just heard, created the Bitter Southerner number six for us. It has yellow beets in it, but don't be scared. It's crazy delicious. You can find her recipe and the other seven at bittersouthern.com. So now let's jump out of the 19th century and into the 20th for a while. The South, like the rest of our nation, had a long dry spell from 1920 to 1933, thanks to Prohibition. Prohibition has killed more folks than Sherman ever seen. If they don't get whiskey, they'll take two dope, cocaine and morphine. This old country, it sure ain't dry, and dry will never be seen. Prohibition, just a scheme, a side money-making machine. You leave, Back in the Prohibition times, that was Clayton McMicken of Alatoona, Georgia, singing the Prohibition blues. Leading up to Prohibition, Americans on the whole drank way more than we do today. Here's Travis Spangenberg of the American Prohibition Museum in Savannah, Georgia, to talk about it. People were drinking about three times what they drink today, uh, and that's a low estimate. About seven gallons of pure alcohol a year, which amounts to about 90 bottles of whiskey a year, and that's taking into account, that statistic includes all the teetotalers as well. So the average drinker was drinking a lot more than that, probably three or four bottles of whiskey a week. Spangenberg says the effects of this epidemic were far-reaching. Eventually, the women that were the real victims of the epidemic, the ones left husbandless and uh, uh, unable to provide for their family, got fed up, and they launched a giant religious social movement. America needs a tidal wave of the old-time religion. Evangelical preacher Billy Sunday was a big part of the Prohibition movement. During the temperance movement that led to Prohibition, if you turned on a radio anywhere, you'd hear him spreading the word of how the Lord had turned against drinkers. America needs to be taken down to God's bathhouse and the hose turned on her. And the time isn't far distant when the wheels of God's judgment are going to go sweeping through this old God-hating world. Not surprisingly, the South did have a big share of teetotalers at the time. And oddly enough, it was Kentucky, the same state that gave us bourbon, that also gave us Carrie Nation, who paraded around across the state of Kansas chopping up saloons with a hatchet. Thanks be to God that we no longer have to worry about Carrie and her blade. Here's a quote of hers, read by an actress. I felt invincible. My strength was that of a giant.
God was certainly standing by me. I smashed five saloons with rocks before I ever took a hatchet. You may think the Cary Nation just hated the sale of alcohol for religious reasons, but of course there's more to her story, just like there's more to everyone's story. In her crusade, she was driven, in part, by her desire to protect women. Carrie Nation's own marriage fell apart because of her husband's alcohol abuse. And Travis tells us she wasn't alone. She was one of those women affected. Uh, she was deeply kind to women who had also been victims of this. And uh, she didn't hate drunks. She didn't hate alcoholics. She went to prisons and did uh, prison outreach, uh, talked to people who she believed were in that position because of what the drink did to them, not because of a, a, a deep failing on their part. She, she saw people's humanity. In Carrie's eyes, drier future meant a brighter future. But prohibition came to an end right before Christmas of 1933. Of course, that just made it easier for sorry men to come home all sauced up and treat women badly. But the hatchets did go back into the tool sheds, and southern women instead made their expectations clear with sharp words, like Loretta Lynn did in 1966. You never take me anywhere because you're always gone. And many a night I've laid awake and cried here all along. Then you come in a kissing on me it happens every time no don't come home a drinker with loving on your mind thank you miss loretta now let's recap a bit so far this episode we've learned about some bartenders of color who created southern cocktail classics more than a century ago and we've established that drinking no matter how folks feel about it is the driving force behind some classic southern songs but let's look ahead for a while. Tiffany Barrier told us some history behind the classics, but it's also instructive to look at Southern bar professionals who push those standbys into new territory. Here's an example. Did you know that you can smoke whiskey? Not like rolling it up and smoking it, but you can smoke it like a pork shoulder over a wood fire so that it picks up the taste of the wood smoke. In Charlotte, North Carolina, at a bar called Haberdish, now you can actually have a mint julep made with smoked whiskey. My name is Jamie Marsicano and I'm a bartender here. I'm about to make the smoked mint julep, which is one of our specialty drinks. So to start, we're going to grab some mint leaves um, and gonna go ahead and muddle them into our copper cup. Just to kind of wake up the mint leaves, then we're going to take our shaved ice. And put it in. This drink is a really cold drink. Um, it's served in the spring and summertime is when it's popular. So that's why we use a, a lot of shaved ice in a copper mug. You got um, this big mint sprig that kind of fans out from the drink. Um, and then it's a little orange on top of the snow cone, um, which is what the Angostura gives that color. Yeah, it makes me think of the snow cone desserts that I had as a kid. It makes me think about watching like the Kentucky Derby um, with because uh, the juleps are a big drink there. Um, people, a lot of people dress up at the races, and this drink is definitely dressed up. Now that kind of adventurous doesn't just stay behind the bar. For several years now, small distilleries have come up all over our region, and to learn about them, we consulted an expert. In fact the expert. Our friend and contributor Kathleen Purvis 
who is the food editor at the Charlotte Observer. Kathleen and I have been buds for a while, and I was delighted when I heard about her plan to visit the small distilleries of the South and then to write a book about them. We ended up doing uh, six trails that cover 11 southern states. Mm -hmm. I went to 54 distilleries in 13 months. For her book, Kathleen plotted what she calls six liquor trails that lead through the South. Who wouldn't want to follow a liquor trail? But most importantly, she documented how our region's craft distillers are creating new Southern traditions in booze, because it ain't all about the bourbon anymore. And she mapped all this out so people can visit exactly where those new traditions are being created as they're being created. All of this work is featured in her 2018 book, Distilling the South, The Guide to Southern Craft Liquors and the People Who Make Them. And our friend Sean Chavis of the Folklore Podcast talked with Kathleen and Charlotte. When we started out with craft brewing, there was a reason for craft brewing, because there was terrible American beer. I mean, let's face it, American beer for a long time was nasty, and it was watered, and it was not that great. And Europe had all this great beer, and then we started having people making great American beer. Um, we already had great American liquor. You know, it ain't like America was making bad whiskey. Right. So you have to go to these people and say, why on earth do you think that you can make something better than, you know, a Jack Daniels or a Woodford Reserve or a Maker's Mark? You know, why, why would you stake your whole life on trying to do that? And that was one of the questions I really wanted to, to get to to people. Um, and I found a variety of answers, but they all had sort of in common the same thing. I really, you know, I was sitting around with my friends. I was drinking this. I was thinking how much I loved it. And we started saying, gee, well, I wonder if you can make this. You know, I wonder if I could do this. The other thing that really was, I think, a driver, and I've seen this in several areas of the food world, is um, around when we had the big crash in 2008, a lot of people were either offered buyouts or they lost their jobs or they were coming out of business school, but the banks weren't hiring. And so what we've seen all over Kraft Food are all these people who um, came out of school, needed something to do, a job, and they decided instead of just having a job, they wanted to make something that was theirs. And so we've seen this explosion in Kraft bread and Kraft cheese and charcuterie and you know, all of these different products. And this is really a part of the same thing. This is a craft food, just like everything else in the craft food movement. There are several things that really jumped out to me, like the limoncello. <laughs> yeah, that was, <laughs> I started off the book with the limoncello. Yeah. Who knew you would find them making limoncello from lemons that are growing in West Virginia? <laughs> lemons in Virginia, I was like, I know, really? <laughs> I know. It's the first page of the book has a picture mm -hmm. that I took inside this greenhouse on the side of a mountain about 15 minutes from Harper's Ferry. So it's like northern West Virginia. Wow. And I'm surrounded by lemon trees. And I'm standing there just kind of doing a, what? <laughs> how, how can this be? <laughs> but yeah, it was a couple who um, had gone to Italy to his, I think the husband's great, great aunt was going to be beatified by the Catholic Church. And wow. so they went to Rome for the ceremony. And while they were in Rome, they got a bottle of limoncello fell in love with it, came back to America, started buying American limoncellos and realizing they weren't that good because they tend to, in America, most of the American limoncellos are made with pith that they use. They get use machine to get it off, and it takes too much of the, the pith off with the zest, and so it makes it bitter. And so they wanted to do it by hand and see if they could make something as good as what you find in Italy. And now they have a line of 10 different cordials they do. Um, it's called Bloomery Dist Distillery. Um, and they have these sweet shine cordials, and so they do like black walnut, and they've got 
Oh man, they got some crazy flavors. Hawaiian ginger. It's it's a blast of a place to go visit. Nice. <laughs> but it's tucked really up in good. the middle of nowhere. I mean, I was literally like, I, I go to pull off the road to drive up there, and I'm looking at this dirt road going uphill, and then you get halfway up, and there's a sign that says, "Yes, just just accelerate. You'll make it. Keep going." <laughs> Keep going. Keep going. We're okay, almost there. <laughs> cool. Yeah. What was the most surprising thing you found? Ah, uh, man, I found people who were doing expressions of their lives. Um, one of my favorite places that I went to uh, is in Georgia. It's uh, about two hours south of the Atlanta airport, and it is called Richland Rum, mm-hmm. and it's in Richland, Georgia, and it's a couple who she's. They're both Dutch. He came over here as a child, um, as a baby. She was. 18 was raised by a, uh, a farmer in uh, Holland and so when she always wanted to go back to the land she always wanted to grow things he was fascinated by um, sugarcane and rum because of the West Indies you know the Dutch started all of that um, in the West Indies mm-hmm. and so he was very interested in history and so they were going to just grow sugarcane for their own amusement and make rum just for themselves as a hobby and they decided to do it legally so they got a liquor license and the mayor of this little abandoned town it was like a at one time a bustling agricultural farm town but everything had pulled out it was they literally pulled up the railroad tracks in this town they're like gouged into the earth where the railroad tracks were and there were all these abandoned buildings and so the mayor of richmond georgia went to them and said um you know would you open a distillery in my town and she said no there's nothing there and he said, yeah, I know. I need something there. I need something that will have a tax base. And so they said, they came in, they looked at all these old buildings, and they said, okay, you know, we get these buildings really cheap, so let's do it. And so they have this big distillery now, and now they're actually attracting other business back to town. There's, there's a chocolate maker that had come in. There was a brewery when I was there. There's somebody outside of town who's doing olive oil. You know, I mean, wow. I mean, there's industry coming back to Richland, Georgia, because of this distillery, because people go there to experience it. Wow. Yeah, and one of the reasons why I wanted to do this as a book was because a lot of the ways these people promote themselves and sell their product is through tours. And so, you know, it's not a book for just for bartenders. I'm hoping I, I hoping the bartenders don't laugh at me for my information. I hope I got everything right. But it's really aimed at people who want to go out and experience something hands-on. I mean, you can, it, it will change how you ever look at a drink. When you go into a distillery and you stick your finger in the vat of, of corn and you get down to the end and it, where the parrot is and you see the actual liquor coming out and you can put your finger in that stream and taste it, you will never think about that liquor the same way again. Okay. You'll have a, like a personal relationship with it. And when you go to drink it, it's this very, you know, emotional sort of sense. People, they t- All the distilleries are telling me about people who come in and want them to sign their bottles. Wow. Because they want to be able to go home and say, hey, you know, I met the guy, signed my bottle, and, you know, I was in the place where they grew this corn. People love that experience. And so that's why I wrote it as a tour book, so that you can go and do this. You can go mm-hmm. see these people. Um, I have a section in my book on mansplaining. And I the, saw that. And <laughs> the I problem of mansplaining in distilleries. Yeah. <laughs> there are a lot of women making um who are master distillers who are the ones in their family who are actually doing the distilling and they say that women have an advantage because our taste buds are different than men's and so we can 
physiologically, we can pick up more tastes sometimes than men do. But I heard from an awful lot of those distillers who told me, you know, a, a dealer will come in looking to sell them supplies, and it'll be, oh, well, I need to speak to the distiller. Can you call your husband for me? And they just kind of go, oh, God, again, really? Um, my husband and I were out touring one time, and we noticed that if I asked a, a male distiller a question, they would turn and answer my husband. You know, we run into that all the time. People don't expect women to be involved in the alcohol industry, but we are. Thanks again to our friend Sean Chavis for that great conversation with Kathleen Purvis. And one more time, her book, which you ought to buy, is called Distilling the South, A Guide to Southern Craft Liquors and the People Who Make Them. And when it comes to strong drink, Kathleen Purvis knows whereof she speaks, and I can prove it with a story of my own. The first time I met Kathleen, it was at a Southern Foodways Alliance conference in Birmingham, Alabama, and someone in the hotel lobby introduced us. We chatted for a few minutes, and then Kathleen asked me if I wanted to have a drink. I thought I was being invited over to the hotel's bar. Instead, Kathleen just looked at me, opened up her pocketbook, pulled out a flask, and handed it to me. I said, hey, bartender, hey, man, look here. Now, I wanted to end our show with some music from the late, great Floyd Dixon of Marshall, Texas, a little town not far west of the Louisiana line, because I want you to remember that this fine tradition of drinking songs that we've been talking about extends far beyond the white folks like Willie and Loretta. There are a long list of these songs going back to the beginning of audio recording, a grand procession of southern drinking songs all of which are good enough to make you forget that you ever heard Toby Keith going on about his red solo cup. We've got a playlist of all these great drinking songs, the result of a poll we did among Bitter Southerner family members. And if you'd like to know how to become one, just visit us at bittersouthern.com. that's it for the Bitter Southerner podcast, episode three. You can subscribe to our show anywhere podcasts are found. Please do. We would appreciate it. And if you like our little show here, we sure would be grateful if you would review it and rate it on whatever podcast platform you use. And you can always listen to our show at bittersouthern.com. That's also where you can read our stories. And it's also where we post the show notes for every podcast episode. And for this week's episode... You'll see links to the recipes for all eight Bitter Southerner cocktails. Our producer is Sean Powers. Sarah Shariari edits the show. And thank you to our many other friends at GPB for helping to make every episode of the Bitter Southerner podcast just a little better. Ever South, our theme song, was written by Patterson Hood and performed by his band, Drive-By Truckers. As always, we thank them. And a huge shout-out to my buddy, Kalina Bowler, for voicing the role of Carrie Nation in today's episode. Kalina hosts the Credits Podcast, which covers Georgia's film industry. It's online at thecreditspodcast.com. The Bitter Southerner Podcast is a co-production of Georgia Public Broadcasting and the Bitter Southern Magazine. Once again, I'm Chuck Reese, and if you've listened before, you know I have a few instructions for you. 
hug more necks, abide no hatred, and do what you love with who you love. We'll see you on episode four.